So we are in what are called the poetic books. You can divide the books of the Bible in the categories according to the kind of literature that they are. And uh, the first five books, you know, are the books of the law. We call those the Pentateuch or the Torah. And uh, then we have the books of history. We covered many of those last quarter as we started in Exodus, which was part of the law, but then proceeded through clear till the end of the time of the monarchy. We called that Exodus to exile. So that brought us to the end of Second Chronicles. This week, uh, we will begin with the books that are actually poetry, and that includes Job and Psalms, the songbook, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, both written by Solomon, and then Solomon's Song of Songs, the love uh, song. So that is the, the whole quarter, and today we're taking up the book of Job. Well, the book of Job addresses that difficult age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, our information about the origin of this book is actually a little misty. We don't know exactly who wrote it. You might have assumed it was Job. We do not know that. It may have been written quite a bit after his day. It is like a long poem. It has 42 chapters, and it was probably written after the time of Abraham, but before the time of Moses, and so many say that it was probably the first book of the Bible that was ever written. So it doesn't have the information about the longest ago, but it was probably written before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that makes it very interesting to me. So let's just start with a little bit of a taste of the first part of it. And I hope this whets your appetite for more because there's no way we can adequately cover the whole thing. And I would love for you to dive into this, this particular book this week. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Well, let me show you where Uz probably was. You can see that it was probably in northwestern Saudi Arabia or Jordan. This was the land of Edom. And maybe you recall that Edom was the part of the Middle East that was settled by Jacob's twin brother Esau, the one who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You remember that? That was Abraham's grandson. But his descendants became the Edomites. They called him red because the pottage that he ate was red. Remember, he was a hairy man. Esau was a hairy man, but he also ate the red pottage. And so his descendants lived in this uh, northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. Well, that was a rabbit trail, wasn't it? But here we are, and Job was probably from that area after the time of Abraham, but still early on when there's not yet a Jewish nation, there's not yet a priesthood, there aren't churches. What people know of the one true God, they get through the, the oral history that's passed down. This man, Job, that we're talking about was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. 
Well, that's pretty concise, but you can find out more about what his character was if you look at some of the things he said in the 29th chapter of Job. He talks about how he always cared for the poor. And this was not in an egotistical way in his brokenness as he's trying to understand why bad things have happened to him. He's going back over how he has lived. And he tells us that he was always good to the fatherless and the widows and those that had physical disabilities like the blind and the lame. He took up the case of the underdog and fought injustice. He said he had even made a covenant with his eyes not to lust after young women. So here was a man who was faithful and true to his one wife. And he had 10 kids. And in fact, in one place he says, I have wept for the needy. This was a man of compassionate heart who then put actions behind his words. And so when we read here that he was blameless and upright, we don't really interpret this to mean that the man was sinless, only Christ was sinless, but that he truly was a man of faith who did the best that he know how, knew how to do. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Now, the Middle East is not a particularly lush area, and you know that for the thousands of years of human history, people, most people live pretty much hand to mouth, doing the very best that they can. And so enormous wealth is rare even in our day, relatively speaking. So Job was like the billionaire of his generation. He really had enormous uh, physical wealth. In fact, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Well, this sounds to me like they were a loving and close family, kids who were well-raised and turned out nice and cared for each other. And it sounds like maybe they were celebrating birthdays. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. In other words, it appears that this man was an intercessor and that he regularly prayed for his kids. He prayed for their souls. That's what this offering sacrifices was about. What a great man. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And you can see that here in this beautiful painting. We have Satan down on the lower right. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? He answered, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So he specifically brings up this righteous man. And isn't it interesting that Satan is even allowed to have an audience with God Almighty after being cast out of his presence? So how all of this works is very mysterious and leaves us with as many questions as we get answered. Satan 
is then told that Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And his reply is, well, he's just doing it because you're good to him. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? So Satan had definitely noticed Job, knew who he was, and recognized that since the time that he had noticed Job, he was not able to get to him for God's protection. You've blessed the work of his hands, and so his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But if you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. So Satan is playing right into God's hands. God brought up the subject of Job because he had this particular course in mind, apparently. And Satan makes it very clear that he would very much like to afflict Job. And so the Lord gives him permission. Why? We'll never really completely understand. So if you were hoping for a good explanation for why bad things happen to good people, you'll be disappointed today. The Bible doesn't always tell us. But the Lord says to Satan, everything he has is in your hands. Don't put your hand on his physical person, so you're not allowed to make him sick, but you can take all of his things and all of his people. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So then some time passes, and I don't know if it was six months or a year or 18 months or however long it was, but some day was just right. And his sons and daughters were having one of those birthday parties where they celebrate each other. All 10 of them were together. They were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. So imagine your oldest child's birthday and they're all in the house together. And all of a sudden, a messenger runs up to Job and says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. So the oxen and the donkeys, an enormous loss of flocks and herds. While he was still speaking, another messenger came. Now imagine this is just bang, 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 all at once. Another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger says, the fire of God fell from the sky. Now, what could that mean? Well, it probably means there was a thunderstorm and a big lightning strike and something caught on fire from the lightning strike and burned up the sheep and the servants. Maybe it had been dry for quite a while. And then this raging fire starts and it takes over everything so quickly that the flocks can't escape. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you, well, these guys are all wide-eyed and they're panting and they're sick with shock. And it's so rapid fire, you really can't even comprehend what you're hearing. We've all had things like that happen where it's unexpected out of the blue and it hits you and you're not even sure really what's going on. And then the worst of all, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert 
and struck the four corners of the house. Well, that sounds to me like it goes with this idea of perhaps a storm. A mighty wind could be a tornado. So we had a thunderstorm and we had the lightning strike and the fire and maybe a tornado. And it collapsed on them. The house collapsed on them and they're dead. Now, I've known people that have lost children before and the devastation went on for years. I've never known anyone personally that lost more than one child at the same time. But the pain of that would be indescribable. So what are you gonna do now, Job? You were such a great man. You were helping the needy and the fatherless and the widow, a person of integrity who tried to keep your thought life right. Now what are you gonna do? You don't have anything. After this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell down to the ground and worshiped. Wow. This is remarkable. And if you happen to remember later, maybe you could check Ezekiel 14, verses 14 and 20, where Job is numbered with only two other men in the Old Testament, Daniel and Noah, as being what appears to be God's top three in people of character. And he said, well, I was naked when I was born and I'll be naked when I die. The Lord gave, but he also takes away and may his name be praised. This is absolutely astonishing and remarkable and inspiring. And then we have in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But he's not done yet. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. I don't know how much time passed, but now he's basically penniless and he has no children. The only thing you can say about him is that he's not sick. And so the angels come to present themselves before the Lord again, and Satan comes with them in this particular painting. You can see that he's coming in from the lower right there. And the Lord asks him, where have you come from? And he tells the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And he brings up the subject of Job again. And God says about Job, there's no one on earth like him. Wow, what if God could say that about you? There's no one on earth like her or him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Well, Satan's reply is skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. Oh, sure. He hadn't turned on you yet. It's because he's not sick. <laughs> yeah, well, you let me strike his flesh and he'll surely curse you to your face. Well, the devil is playing right into the Lord's hands again because for his own reasons, the Lord had intended to test Job. And so he says, all right, he's in your hands. Just don't kill him. You can make him sick. You may not take his life. Thought you might be interested in this old figure. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores. These were probably boils. They were probably infections. And they just hurt 
terribly from the soles of his feet. Now imagine trying to walk around if you had extremely painful boils on the bottoms of your feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So he's covered with sores. Maybe Sasori can't even stand to have clothes touching him. And he wants to scrape his skin for whatever reason anyway. So he's not wearing a whole lot of clothes and he's sitting in this ash heap and he's the lowest of the low. He looks like a dead man. He's lost everything. So he's been afflicted body, mind, and soul. And then to add insult to insult to injury, his wife says to him, I've had it. You can imagine all of these things happened to her too, except for the loss of her health. She lost all their wealth and she lost all their children. And I can't imagine what she went through. Sometimes we forget that. But the integrity of her heart and her faith in God was not what Job's was. And what Satan had thought was true of Job was apparently true of her. She was acknowledging God, perhaps, until things don't go her way, and then it's, well, I'm out of here. So she says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. She would just love to be out of this mess. If he would go away and I could go off and pretend like I never met him, never knew him, and start over. But he says to her, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Wow, he doesn't seem to have an attitude of entitlement. He doesn't think that he has earned God's grace. And it says there in verse 11, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I thought you might want to see this painting. It was done in about 1630. It's called Job Mocked by His Wife, and it's oil on canvas painted by Georges de la Tour. Pitiful. So then Job has these three friends because he was a very prominent man in the community. And in fact, one of the things I didn't tell you that he speaks of in one of his discourses in chapters 29 through 31 when he's talking about, well, I've cared for the widow and the fatherless and the poor and those that are uh, have disabilities. And he's talking about all those things. He said, used to when I would walk into the city gate, people would rise you know, out of respect, even the elderly, when they saw him coming, if they were sitting down, it's like if the judge walks into the courtroom. I mean, that's a really great man. Let's rise and show him respect. And everybody got quiet. And if young men were talking, Job said they would clap their hand on their mouth because, oh, it's the great Job. Well, make way. So he had some friends. And so three of his friends came, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they heard about all the troubles, so they set out from their homes and met by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud. Imagine seeing somebody who was in so much distress of soul that when you saw him, it just made you sick and you started crying. And so... They were such good friends of his. I don't want you to get the idea that these are just hateful men, but they were such good friends 
that they sat down with him for a week. Now, it's one thing when you hear that somebody has suffered a loss, you go over to their house, maybe you take a dish, and maybe you'll sit with them for a couple of hours. Can you imagine going over to someone's home and staying with them for a week? And here's something else. They tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads and they didn't talk for a week because they saw how great his suffering was. A whole week they didn't talk. And then finally he was ready to say something and Job speaks to his friends. This uh, pencil drawing was done by Gustave Doré. He was from the 1800s. And this is how he starts out. What would a man say who's been in utter shock and sitting on an ash heap and scraping his source? He's shaved his head and he's almost catatonic. You know, they didn't talk to him because he couldn't be talked to all those days. And, you know, you bring him something to eat and maybe he takes a sip of water now and then, but he's not eating. You see, he's just wasting away the stress. He's lost, good grief, he's lost 10 or 15 pounds in a week. Finally, he says, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it and may blackness overwhelm it. Well, I can't tell you everything he said because it's a couple of chapters and it's more than we have time for. But he's very, very shocked that this has happened to him and extremely depressed. So now, finally, his three friends are going to reply to him and they're unknowingly going to be on the wrong track and say to him exactly the wrong thing and make his problem worse because they subscribe to something that we call the retribution principle. That's the idea that if you do good, you'll reap a reward, and if you do evil, you will reap punishment. Well, now that is a biblical concept even in the New Testament. You reap what you sow. That is in the Bible. And there are numerous places in Psalms and Proverbs where it says, if you do right, you'll be rewarded for it. If you do wrong, you'll be punished. But there's a corollary to that that is not biblical. If you are experiencing bad things, then based on what I just said about the retribution principle, then you must have done evil. And if things are going well for you, then you must be living a righteous life. So this first guy on our list, Eliphaz, the Temanite, he was from that area around us from northwest Saudi Arabia where the Edomites lived. He's kind of the leader of this group. He opens each of the three discourses that you find throughout these 42 chapters in Job. And in fact, he even claimed that he got some of this information because he had a vision. He talks about a spirit coming to him in the night and how all the hair on his body stood up because he was so scared when he saw the spirit. So he thinks he's got a message from God that he's going to give Job. And basically, in a nutshell, what he tells him in the chapters that follow, if you would like to study this, is that righteous people don't get punished or have bad things happen to them. You see how he's drawing the wrong conclusion from the retribution principle. 
And he's saying, if you're suffering, it has to be because you're wicked. And then he's accusing Job in one place of oppressing widows and orphans. Now, can you imagine how painful that would be if you had been a person who had a heart for widows and orphans? And in fact, you were even a person who wept, a man of his day who wept when you saw the plight of the needy and you reached out to them and did things for them. And then one of your good friends comes and points a finger and says, you wouldn't be in that mess if you weren't hurting widows. Here's another uh, painting by William Blake called Job's Comforters. But let me give you a tiny sampling of the actual words of Eliphaz. We'll go to Job for so this is the first guy to say anything to Job after they've been with him for a week. Who being innocent has ever perished? Well, boy, he sure lives in a naive black and white world, doesn't he? Well, I've never seen anybody good that had anything bad happen to him. You go on down, he says, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Okay, so you get the idea. We have to move on, but that's comforter number one, Eliphaz the Temanite. Then it's the turn of comforter number two to speak. His name is Bildad the Shuhite. He was probably a descendant of Abraham because perhaps you recall that after Sarah died and Hagar was sent away, Abraham married a third woman. Her name was Keturah, and they actually had six sons. And boy number six was named Shua. You can read about him in Genesis 25. Well, the Shuhite was a descendant of Shua, so this was probably a distant cousin to the Israelites. And he participates in each one of these three discussions but he is stronger in his language than leader guy number one, Eliphaz. There's another painting for you to look at. You can see this scene has certainly been the subject of many artists' works. But here's a sampling of Bildad the Shuhite, more vehement than those before. And here's the, the bad thing about him. Notice, I should go back to the list here of what he said. He even blamed Job's children, not just Job, for what had happened. So in Job 8, Bildad says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So can you even imagine the horrifying pain and shock and loss of losing 10 healthy, loving, united adult children? Adult. Here you've raised them up and they're all gone in a day. And then somebody comes along and says, well, you know why they all died. They deserved it. They were bad people. Your lousy, sinful children got just exactly what they should have gotten. They were on the wrong side of righteousness. So that was knife in the heart. So then we come to comforter number three, three Zophar the Naamathite. We don't know as much about his background, but he was apparently also 
from Arabia, and he participates in two of the three discussions. He was the most dogmatic of all of the three friends. He believed, too, that Job needed to repent. But get this, after everything Job suffered, the only thing Job had left was the actual breath he breathed. He had lost the confidence of his wife. He had lost respect in the community, which he talks more about. He had lost all of the wealth that he had. He had lost all 10 of his children. And this guy has the goal to say, well, you didn't even get everything you really had coming to you. That's how bad you were. So here is this emaciated, sick, in pain, grieving man, and he just sticks the knife in and twists it. Let me give you a sample in Job 11. Know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. You're lucky you're not dead because really you've been so bad that he should have killed you. That's what he's saying here. Yet, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, and if you put away the sin that's in your hand, did you catch the accusation? And allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you'll lift up your face and stand firm and without fear. Wow. These are not hateful men, are they? I mean, they came and sat with him for a whole week without speaking. When they saw what had happened to him, they burst into tears and tore their robes and put dust on their heads. They're not like enemies going up to him and saying, yeah, 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 you got what you deserve. But they really believed that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And that's all. And that's only the way that it is. And that's what God does in this world and in this life. This particular painting was done in the 1600s too. It hangs in a museum in Prague in the Czech Republic by Gerard Seegers. And that's Job and his comforters. And in the middle of all this, I wanted to show you something interesting that Job said that you might want to tuck away because to me, this is so profound. He said, oh, that my words were recorded and that they were written on a scroll. <laughs> he didn't know it was going to become part of the Bible. That they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Doesn't the word of God stand forever? I know that my Redeemer lives. He didn't have a Bible. How did he know that? Look at this man of faith. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. You know what they call that, don't you? The resurrection? Here's this dying man. He thinks he's dying anyway. Talking about seeing God in his flesh. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And then on top of all that, there was one more guy who came really late in the game. So he's not one of the original three comforters. And some think that this part of the book was even written later. He doesn't appear until chapter 32. His name was Elihu of Barakel the Buzite. And in fact, perhaps he was a descendant of Abraham's nephew. So he may have been 
distantly related to the Israelites, but he's more modest than his comforter friends. He doesn't feel like he has the authority to speak so vehemently, but he still insists that really there's a greater good for suffering and that suffering will lead you to a greater trust in and dependence on God. He's not as reproved for what he says, but it's just painful. So here's a sample of guy number four's words. I'm young in years and you're old. That's why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit that the light of life may shine on them. So this young man, well, he's been thinking a lot about it, and he thinks, well, you were headed the wrong direction, and God's trying to show you mercy and pull you back. They've all got their reasons. And they really are all dead wrong in this particular case. Yes, people do reap what they sow. And yes, that's a biblical principle. But we have to realize that most of the time, we don't have any idea what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, if those four guys could have seen the conversation that the Almighty had with Satan, and that God had called Job in front of Satan, um, a perfect and upright man that feared God and shunned evil, they would have realized that they were completely on the wrong track. So then we get to the end of the book, and we're in Job 38, and finally, after he can really take no more, and this 1803 painting by William Blake is called The Lord Answering Job from the Whirlwind, here comes some sort of a tornado or something, and Job is at the end of his rope, and these men have said all they can say, accusing him of things and trying to get him to turn from sin that he never committed, that they don't believe him when he denies. And the Lord speaks for several chapters, marvelous things, a little sampling. The first thing that God says, surprisingly, instead of, I'm so proud of you and I'm so sorry that you had to go through this, God doesn't say that our merciful and compassionate and loving and gracious God. Instead, he says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Because Job keeps not shaking his fist at the sky, but saying, I want an audience with God. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand why all this is happening. Why, 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 why? God says, brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you'll answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Wow, God's even getting a little sarcastic with this man who has been through so much. On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? The discourse is long, and in the interest of time, I will truncate it here. But Job finally responded to the Lord saying, now wait just a minute. You don't have a clue. What you know about this whole situation wouldn't would fit in a thimble, buddy boy. And then Job says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. 
Boy, we ought to remember that when the people that we love suffer. We don't have the answers. We don't know why. We don't know why people get sick or why they die or why they have difficulties. And then Job said, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But after Job talked with God, God turned to the three comforters and specifically to guy number one, the leader, Eliphaz. And he says to him, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you haven't spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. In other words, you were so far off. What you said was pure bunk. You're clueless about me. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself and my servant Job will pray for you. You know the guy over there with the blackened skin who's been scraping his boils and who's bone thin and who shaved his head and looks like death warmed over? Well, he's mine. And I'm going to have him pray for you that you don't die. That's humbling, isn't it? And so they go and do that and God forgives them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So then we get to the end and we find out that his prosperity is restored. This painting was done in 1648. Job restored to prosperity. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but one by one by one, his friends came back, his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him came and ate with him in his house, comforted and consoled him. His skin's looking better. He's putting on weight. He's taken a new wife. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. All of those were doubled. And he had 10 more children. Now you might say, wait a minute, how come they didn't double the kids? But something that someone told me not too long ago I thought was so insightful was, well, the children, they died, but they continued to exist. And so giving him 10 more, now his children's number doubled because they're all eternally created souls. Isn't this interesting? The first daughter he had was named Jemima. That means dove. And the second, Keziah, that means sweet-scented spice. And the third, Karen Hoppick, was child of beauty. He lived another 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and he died old and full of years. Okay, what's the point of this book? If it's not going to tell us why bad things happen to good people, what good is it? Well, we learn from this that if you intend to endure in this Christian life following after God, and you can expect bad things are going to happen, you have to not feel entitled to God's blessings. Remember, Job said, I was naked when I was born. I'll be naked when I die. Don't have anything and I'm not going out with anything. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be his name. And he stayed true to God regardless of the circumstances. He wasn't a fair weather follower. He wasn't following God because God gave him stuff. And also he never accused God of foolish behavior. Like David, I'll watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I mean, it was Paul who told us to endure hardship like we were in a battle, like a soldier. Soldiers don't have it easy. Well, tough beans. We're just going to keep going. We're going to serve him anyway. 
And in fact, sometimes the only thing left to do in the middle of the worst, worst, most awful part is just stand there in the wind and not get blown over. That's what matters and counts. And nobody said to Job at the time, hey, if you'll endure, this is going to wind up in the Bible and it's going to inspire people for thousands of years. And you're always going to be remembered as a righteous man and God's going to use this. And by the way, you are going to live 140 more years and you're going to have more kids and you're going to get all your stuff back. Nobody told him that. He just was in the middle of horrible awfulness and people were accusing him of bringing it on himself. And so he just stood there and continued to breathe. And sometimes that's all you can do. It was Jesus that said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And look at this as we close. Job made it to the New Testament. It was James who said, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who've persevered. In other words, we get really inspired by them. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Well, I'll tell you, it didn't feel like he was very full of compassion and mercy when Job found out that all 10 of his kids had been killed in one day and when he lost all of his wealth and his wife turned on him. Didn't feel like that, but it was still true. So what's the bottom line to all this? What's the point of this big, long poem? When bad things happen to God's people, they're called to endure and trust. Why do those things happen? Don't know. And if anybody says they know, you better take it with a grain of salt. But you just stand and be faithful. And he'll bring you through. You'll be glad. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 